Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these wonderful verses about our sanctification. I'd like to believe you laid these on my heart and would have me preach them to your people, Lord. I pray that you would use them to the fullest in our lives, that you would help us to understand sanctification, this wonderful process of becoming more like your son, and we'd even ask for that process to be taking place while your word is being preached, just knowing that it is one of the most powerful sanctifying um, efforts we have in our lives, Lord, and, and I pray that your word would be washing over us and, and conforming us into Christ's image and likeness, and that's for believers, Lord. We pray for any unbelievers who are here that they'd be convicted of their sin, that they would see their need for Christ, and that you open their hearts to the gospel and save them, Lord, that they wouldn't, that none of us would leave here the way we came, but especially any unbelievers, that they would be able to leave today as believers. We do thank you for this time, Lord. Pray you'd be glorified through it and pleased with it, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is Progressive Sanctification for Children and Fathers. So I told you I had a few sermons on my heart that I wanted to preach before we return to our verse-by-verse study through Luke. And these are three verses that I couldn't get into one sermon. I'll talk a little more about what we'll be able to cover this morning, and then we'll have another sermon on these verses next week. So some of you might remember that when we moved here in 2010, we had three children, Rhea, Ricky, and Johnny. Johnny was only a few months old, but he was not growing. It was a pretty scary time for us. So this is one picture I found of Johnny during that season. His skin, his, I don't know, it shows super, it doesn't, might not show particularly well there, but his skin was basically hanging from him, from his face, from his arms. He was, we took him to the doctor. They said that he was failure to thrive. It was a pretty scary time, particularly for Katie, who was trying to nurse him around the clock, but couldn't get him to gain any weight. Those of you who were here at that time did pray for Johnny, and by God's grace, he started growing, and here's a picture of him after he grew. Yeah, grew so much, you see a little belly sticking out from underneath the shirt there, right? I'm sure it's probably just too small for him. So now we're no longer concerned. We're no longer concerned about uh, Johnny's growth or being failure to thrive. Sometimes we're a little concerned about some of the friends he chooses. <laughs> Something you can pray for. And just kidding, where's Austin? Did he step out? Where? Where are you, Austin? I think he stepped out. I think he left. He did. He did. When he gets back, you tell him that this is what happens when you walk out of the service, Pastor Scott's. Okay, there you go. So we love you, Austin. Thankful for you. Thankful that God brought you to WCC and my, my son has you in his life. Just another example of some of the concerning friends of my son. Just a second. It's coming. Oh. oh, look at that. These are the people my son's... Let's just show that again. Oh. Now it's just frozen. <laughs> Here we go. One more time. Ha, <laughs> Yeah, look at that. Okay, so Johnny's practicing with them for the Broadway night. If you guys want to go watch it and see them do that on stage. So as concerning as it is when people don't grow physically, it's even more concerning when they don't grow, when they don't grow spiritually. Yes. Listen to these verses from Ephesians 4 and the strong emphasis on spiritual growth. Ephesians 4.13, it says, until we all attain 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So these verses describe what's known as progressive sanctification, which is the lifelong process or journey that begins at the moment of salvation of becoming more like Jesus, being conformed into his image and likeness. Now, this morning's verses are fascinating because they describe or divide up our progressive sanctification into three stages of life. And what are those three stages that you see in the verses? We have children or little children and then we have young men and we have fathers so god's spiritual family is like earthly families and that there are members at all different stages of life and maturity so we're going to look at children and fathers this morning there was too much for me to try to fit in young men in this sermon young men will have their own sermon next week and i just want to say i have a strong burden for the young men in this church and i desire to see them grow i desire to see them be pure and so i really want to appeal to you that if you're a young man to make sure that you're here next week and if there's a young man in your life that you care about then invite that young man highly encourage him to be here next week for that sermon i'm, I'm pretty convinced that if you have strong men you can have strong marriages you can have strong families you have strong families you can have strong churches you have weak men you're going to have weak marriages weak families weak churches weak society and so there really is a huge responsibility on men's shoulders to be spiritually strong spiritually mature and so there's a sermon specifically for the the young men next week this morning we'll just look at the children and fathers before we jump into the verses, I want to draw your attention to the unique way that these verses are written. So you probably notice that there are two sets of addresses. There are two sets of addresses to three different groups. So the three addresses are to children, fathers, and young men. In the first set, the address begins with, I am writing to you. And in the second set, the address begins with, I write to you. And notice that john isn't writing about these groups he's writing to these groups what i mean by that is he doesn't say this he doesn't say children's sins are forgiven or fathers know him who's from the beginning or young men have overcome the evil one he writes to each of those groups and he says i am writing to you or i write you children i write you young men and fathers and i think that by writing to each of these groups personally versus writing about each of these groups it makes it very personal shows john's heart or god's heart through john for us to know these truths and the last point the verses are not about people spiritually or they're not about biological children or biological young men or biological fathers instead they're about these stages spiritually they're about so someone could be spiritually a child if they became a christian later in life right and so it's talking about which stage we're in spiritually speaking so let's see what's said to children or what we could think of as new new converts or baby christians and 
1 John 2, 2, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now skip to the end of verse 13 to see the other thing that is said to children. 1 John 2, 13, he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So these are the two things said to children, that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, and you know the Father. And you probably notice that these are both pretty simple foundational truths, and this brings us to lesson one. Children's progressive sanctification begins with gospel basics. Children's progressive sanctification begins with gospel basics. Because children or baby Christians only have a basic understanding or a new understanding of the gospel, these would be two wonderful yet simple truths to share with them. So first, John assured them that their sins were forgiven. But interestingly, you need to reassure new believers that their sins are forgiven. But I would say at times, believers of any age really can be blessed hearing the gospel and being told that their sins are forgiven. But probably more than any other group, new believers need to be reassured of this truth that their sins have been forgiven through Christ. If you're a new Christian or if you can remember being a new Christian, then you probably remember I would even use the word amazement, or at least awe, at the reality of what Christ had done for you. I remember hearing the gospel the first time in my early 20s, and I was amazed by what, what Christ had done for me. When I was Catholic, and I was convinced that I was saved by my works, I was not amazed by what Christ had done for me. I was more amazed by what I had done, my, my confirmation, baptism, first communion, and so forth. But when you see that it's all about what Jesus has done for us, you can't help but being awed by the gospel. Second, John tells them that God was their father. This is a fitting thing to say to children because children have a father. And children or baby Christians learn to see God as our caring father, see ourselves as his children, dependent children. Some, a truth, really all of us, I'm definitely still learning to apply. I think someone said that in Sunday school this morning, talking about being dependent on God. Now let's talk about what it means that children know God as their father. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. Children's progressive sanctification begins with part two, moving from knowledge to relationship. Moving from knowledge to relationship. We talked before about some of the weaknesses of the English language, so I won't spend too much time on this. We talked about the word love. We have one word in the Greek. There's lots of words. Or the word ignorant has a real negative connotation in English, but in Scripture, it can actually be a word that defends someone making bad decisions because they simply didn't know better. Well, one of the other words that could be considered weak in the English language, or at least the, the Greek language came up with two words for it, is the word know or knowing. And if you just think, we'll talk about knowing our spouse or our children or President Trump or Bill Gates, and we'll use the same word know for all of those relationships. Although obviously we know our spouse much differently than our children or a president or famous individual. And so what we do to distinguish between the ways that we know people is we add the word of. We'll say that we know of these people. Well, in the Greek language, there were two words for the word no, there was a epistemi knowledge, which is simply a knowing of someone, having an intellectual knowledge or an awareness of someone, the way that we would know of Bill Gates. But then there's also gnosko knowledge. 
And gnosko would be a knowledge that comes from relationship or experience, the way that you know someone that you deal with in, in life, the way you know that your spouse or a, another family member. I want to show you a passage in the New Testament that illustrates this. If you mark your spot in 1 John and turn to Acts 19. Turn to Acts 19, 13. And I like to use this passage because there's a verse that has these two types of knowing in the same verse, epistemi and gnosko. Just to give you the context for these verses, this is when Paul encountered the sons of Sceva. And if you, were, if you remember them, they're individuals who fancied themselves to be exorcists. They were not believers, so they didn't have any real power or authority over demons. So look in verse 13, Acts 19, 13. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits and they would say i adjure you by the jesus whom paul proclaims seven sons of a jewish high priest skiva were doing this so they're trying to cast out demons without having any spiritual power to do so they're calling on christ's name and then something ends up happening that none of them would have expected in verse 15 this evil spirit answers them and says and then notice this jesus i know Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So they're trying to cast out this demon. The demon speaks out of the demon-possessed man and then attacks them, strips them of their clothes, beats them up, and sends them off naked. Now the reason I'm having you look at this is when the demon said, Jesus, I know, that's the word gnosko. That's the knowledge that comes from relationship or experience, which would make sense because prior to Lucifer's rebellion, did fallen angels have a relationship with Christ? Yes, they were in heaven. They worshiped him. They would have been around, around the throne. Now, when they said, Paul, I know, that's, or in some Bibles, I think it says, Paul, I recognize, that's epistemi. So that's the knowledge that comes intellectually having an awareness of someone or something. And like an example would be if I said I know wrestling versus I know rugby, right? So I know of rugby. I have an intellectual knowledge of it. That's epistemi. But I've never played rugby before, whereas I have wrestled, so I have experience with it. That would be gnosko. Well, when they said Paul I know, that's a different word for know. That's not gnosko. That's epistemi. Now, why would they say they know Paul? Why would they know who Paul is? because he'd been this dramatic instrument in the Lord's hands to cast out demons. He had apostolic power and authority. He had contended with the demonic realm, had successfully cast out demons. So Paul was on their, the demonic realm's radar, you might say, even if the demons never had any relationship with him. And so they say, we know of Paul, but who are you guys? They had no knowledge of the sons of Sceva who were trying to cast them out. And then they taught him a lesson for pretending like they had some power authority that they didn't. With that, you can turn back to 1 John 2, and I'll make it clear why I'm sharing this with you. It's like the demons say, you have no power, no authority over me. Now you'll learn your lesson for pretending like you do. 
Now, the reason that I mention this is when it talks about children knowing the father, it's not epistemi, it is gnosko. So it means that they have moved from an intellectual knowledge or understanding of the gospel to a relationship with the father. Now, there can be lots of people of any age who remain with an epistemi knowledge. They've heard the gospel before. They could probably explain it to you, but they have no relationship with the Lord. And so they have not developed a gnosko knowledge. But right here it's saying the children have this gnosko knowledge. They have begun a relationship. They have an experience. They know God through that experience and relationship with him. Two more points about these verses. First, we should appreciate that they're said to little children. And here's what I mean by that. If these verses were written to young men, or let's say even worse, to fathers, then we would assume that you have to be a young man to have what? Your sins forgiven. Or if they're written to fathers, maybe you'd have to, we'd have to assume that you have to be a father to know the father. Or another way, simpler way to say it is, if this wasn't written to children, we would assume that you have to have a certain amount of maturity to have your sins forgiven. You've had, you would have to grow enough, maybe know enough, to have a relationship with God. But by saying this to children who've done nothing to merit this sort of grace, it shows that this is an availability for anyone at the earliest stages of conversion. The, the, the moment someone is born again or saved, their sins are forgiven and they have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. The youngest Christian is completely forgiven. More forgiveness is not available or needed. The youngest Christian has access to God the Father. There's not a great access or availability. And that was a fairly shocking statement to me because I didn't see an access growing up to God. Any access I had went through what or whom? Yeah, it could have been through Mary, could have been the local priest, could have been through the saints, could have been through the pope or a bishop, but there was no real confidence that I could press into the throne room of God and have access to the Father like that. But by saying this to children, the idea is that new converts, baby Christians, have this access. Now, second, when I, I've repeatedly said, and deliberately, the phrase baby Christian, and I've been talking about baby Christians not having a lot of knowledge, and that can almost sound insulting. Nobody wants to be called a baby Christian, and nobody wants to be told that they only know gospel basics, or nobody wants to be told that they don't know much spiritually. But here's the truth. Baby Christians are still what? They're still Christians, which makes them so much greater than unbelievers that they can't even be compared. You've got one that's going to spend eternity in heaven with the Lord, and you've got another one that's going to spend eternity in hell, in torment. Matthew 11, 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, I can't imagine a much greater commendation than this. You've got Jesus saying that John is the greatest man who's ever lived who was born of a woman. But then after this, Jesus says, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. So this statement, it would be very dramatic no matter 
when Jesus said it, but it's made more dramatic by Jesus saying it after the great commendation he made of John. So Jesus says this after highlighting John's greatness and then saying that the least person in the kingdom of God is still greater than this man that Jesus said is greater than all other, all other men who have been born of a woman. So how can we understand this? Well, John came before, I mean, Ed was talking about in his communion devotion, he came before Jesus brought the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. So John is a New Testament, he's almost like an Old Testament individual in the New Testament because he precedes Christ. So we don't view John, even though he was saved, but we don't view him as a member of the kingdom of God because he preceded the kingdom of God's arrival on earth with Christ. And so if believers, here's the point, if believers who are part of the kingdom of God by faith in Christ are greater than John the Baptist, a man that Jesus said is greater than all other men, then imagine how much greater baby Christians are who are part of the kingdom of God than unbelievers. And so to talk about baby Christians, or as John says, little children here, it shouldn't be viewed insultingly. It's just a way to refer to new converts. Now, speaking of unbelievers, what stage do we put them in? We don't put them in a stage, do we? Because these are stages of spiritual growth or spiritual life, and unbelievers are still spiritually dead. You could say that the stage they're in is dead. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Colossians 2.13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. So unbelievers cannot grow spiritually. They haven't even begun the journey that's described in these verses. They can't be sanctified because they haven't yet been what? Justified. It's like justification is the starting line from where the race begins. And so justification is that once for all time instantaneous moment that God declares us righteous by our faith in Christ. We can never be more righteous than we are at the moment of justification. Sanctification is that ongoing process throughout our Christian life. But unbelievers haven't even started taking step one, so they definitely can't begin step two. And so if you listen to this and you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, you haven't repented yet and believed and seen your need for Jesus, then you're before this sermon would even start. You're back needing to repent and believe and be born again. Now, I don't think I have OCD. I like to see things be in order. <laughs> but am I the only one that noticed that it goes children, fathers, young men, versus children, young men, fathers? Now, if I wrote this, it wouldn't go this way. <laughs> But that's good that I didn't write it. And so because I know God knows why he wanted to do this and it would be much better than any reasons that I would have, we're going to go ahead and we're going to stick with the order that God has provided in these verses. And we're going to go with fathers next because they're next in the verses and then deal with young men next week. So let's take a look at the verses written to fathers. In verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning and then again, he addresses them at the beginning of verse 14. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him 
who is from the beginning. What did you notice about the two things said to fathers? Yeah, he says the exact same thing to them. To say that fathers know him who is from the beginning is different than to say that what is said to children, the children know the father. This is to describe a deep and an intimate knowledge of God. Fathers are the most mature. They're advanced in years. They're like these great oaks of the faith that have taken all of these you know, decades to grow with roots going down very deep. Think of the strength and the sturdiness. That's father, spiritually speaking. Two things have, and so why say the same thing to fathers? It must be that important that God wants to repeat it to us. That the thing to notice about fathers is that they have this deep, intimate knowledge of God. And it begs the question, where did this come from? Two things have produced this maturity or progressive sanctification that fathers have, and this brings us to lesson two. The father's progressive sanctification comes from part one, the word. The father's progressive sanctification comes from part one, the word. We know fathers have spent time in the word because fathers are mature. You could even argue that fathers are the picture of maturity, the picture of sanctification. And that comes from the word. Sanctification or maturity does. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Ephesians 5, 26, Jesus might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. So if sanctification or spiritual growth comes from the word, and we're dealing with fathers who are the most mature, you're not going to have fathers who have not spent an immense amount of time in God's word. So should you ever meet someone who's a father or who's very spiritually mature, you know that you're meeting someone who has spent much time in God's word. Or another way to look at it is if you want to be a father, you want to be spiritually mature, there would be no way to be a father without spending considerable time in God's word since that's where sanctification or maturity comes from. Now follow me for a moment. Why do we know there's a God? Don't say the Bible. Why do we know there's a God? Because of what? What's the revelation to us that there is a God? Creation. Yes, Romans 1.20. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You would never have to have a Bible to know that there is a God or a creator. You just have to have some familiarity with creation itself. But this is not a deep knowledge of God. This is not what's in view in 1 John 2. This is simply knowing, it's almost like the epistemi knowledge that there's a creator without having a relationship with the creator. It's the epistemi versus the gnosko. And that's why this knowledge, what? The knowledge described in Romans 1.20, is it condemning or saving? Well, it says man's left without excuse, Right? So the knowledge of God in creation is not a salvific knowledge. That's why people still need what? The gospel preached to them to be saved. To recognize there is a creator does not save, it simply condemns. That's why it says again, man is left without excuse. He's guilty for not having a relationship with that God who is known through creation. That's the necessity for the gospel to be preached so that people can be forgiven and be saved. 
So the point is, that deep understanding, that intimate knowledge of God, it does not come from creation. It comes from Scripture. To have a deep understanding of God requires time in the Word because that's where God reveals Himself deeply. And you can almost always tell when people don't know God, or another way to say it is you can almost always tell when people don't have a good understanding of God because they say something like this. I think God is like, and then whatever follows that is usually heretical, right? Have you ever noticed that with people? They give you their opinions about God, totally unbiblical. Those are people who have not spent time in the Word. They don't know God deeply. The second thing fathers have or I should say the second thing they've experienced that allows them to be mature or sanctified is the other thing that produces maturity, and that's trials. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. A father's progressive sanctification comes from part two, trials. Show me any mature person, and you will be showing me someone who has suffered. Show me any mature person, and you'll show me someone who has been through considerable trials, because it is the other way for God to grow us or to mature us. Think for a moment about David before he went before Goliath. Why was David so confident that he would defeat Goliath? Does anyone remember? Because he'd previously defeated what? David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So you talk about confidence. You've got, he didn't say, David didn't say God might. I might be victorious. He said, David, David said, God will give me victory over this Philistine. He will deliver me from his hand. And so David was so confident because of the previous experiences or we could say trials that god had brought up there when i was i had sent my notes to katie we had a busy week and i wasn't sure i was going to be able to go over my sermon with her i was able to go over the sermon with her uh, but to be candid with you we've had some tough times in our home after having our our tenth child trying to stay on top of things been harder for for katie than to me and I appreciated the way that she applied God's word to her life or to her motherhood because she said, and I'm not joking, she said, God has delivered me through having nine other children so I can handle this tenth one. And she, so she looked at the previous experiences that she had with God, previous difficult seasons with other children, and God's faithfulness with those other children convinced Katie of God's faithfulness with this 10th child, Hudson. And so the point, though, is Katie wouldn't have had the experience that she does. She wouldn't have had the faith that she does without the experiences or trials that she's been through previously. Strong faith is a faith that has been through difficult circumstances. Strong faith is a faith that has, in the language of Peter, been tried and tested, refined by the fire, shown to be able to withstand the heat. But a, a, a faith that hasn't been tried or tested is not going to be a strong faith. A few verses demonstrating this. James 1-2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing are three ways to refer to maturity. They're all really saying the same thing. 
Because we think of the word perfect, here's another kind of weakness, or at least way the English language doesn't communicate the same as the Greek. I think most of you know that when Scripture uses the word perfect, it doesn't mean free from error, does it? What does it mean? It means mature or complete or lacking nothing. What does the word complete mean? It means perfect or lacking nothing. What does lacking nothing mean? It means perfect or complete. So these are all ways to refer to maturity when it says trials are going to make you perfect, complete, lacking nothing is just a way to say the trials are going to mature us. And he so wants to drive this home that he refers to maturity three different synonymous ways. Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing the suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character hope, just a way to describe the maturing process that all comes from trials. So there is no substitute in the Christian life for trials. I wish there was. I could wish that blessings matured us. <laughs> I could wish lots of other things would mature us like trials do, but there is no substitute for going through difficult situations with our Savior. Second only to the Word, or on par with the Word, nothing will produce maturity or growth in our lives like trials and suffering. And so my point is, if you see a father showing a father, spiritually speaking, or a mature person, you're going to be showing me someone who has suffered immensely, went through numerous difficult seasons of life. And some people don't become fathers because they turn back before that. Their faith doesn't withstand the trial. It's being refined by the heat and doesn't withstand the heat. And it's, it doesn't make sense if I say it's not a question of whether we survive a trial. It's a question of whether our faith survives a trial. Here's what I mean by that. People don't always survive trials. Some trials result in the end of life or some trials result in death. So it's not important that our lives survive trials. It's only important that our faith survives trials. In fact, a life could survive and a faith might not. The most important thing is that the faith survives. And we cannot become fathers without trials. They allow us to know God and understand him intimately, deeply. Show me someone who has suffered greatly and you'll be show, seeing someone or showing me someone who knows the Lord deeply and is familiar with him, has an intimate relationship with him. Speaking of knowing and understanding God, there's something else I want you to notice about fathers that I think has much application for us, and this brings us to lesson three. Knowing God is the height of progressive sanctification. Knowing God is the height of progressive sanctification. When these verses address children and young men, multiple things are said to them. Let me say that one more time. When the verses address, or when John writes to children, and when he writes to young men, he says multiple things to children, he says multiple things to young men. To children, he says, your sins are forgiven, you know the Father. When we talk about young men next week, although we did read verses this morning, young men are told that they've overcome the evil one, they're strong, the word of God abides in them. Fathers are told just one thing. That's it. And it's so important that that one thing is said twice. And so we know that God repeats himself to emphasize or to make sure we don't miss something, and he really wants us to know that the height of maturity is knowing God. 
I've always told you that this is God's way of stressing or making sure we take a truth with us. So think about this for a moment. The fact that fathers are the most mature and they're applauded for knowing God tells us that nothing is more mature than this. We can't go beyond this to something better. You don't become more mature and then do something better than knowing God. There's no other level to attain that would involve something different. And that really struck me this week because I think for many people, they would think the height of maturity, especially perhaps in charismatic circles, might be performing miracles, doing something supernatural. To be able to perform a miracle would show you someone's incredible maturity. It's not preaching. As important as preaching or teaching God's Word is, and it's easy to look at people that preach and teach and assign them an amount of maturity, and there should be an amount of maturity associated with preaching or teaching God's Word, but that's not what's said here. It doesn't say that fathers preach well or fathers teach well. As important as prayer is, it doesn't talk about fathers being prayer warriors. As important as serving is, it doesn't talk about fathers being servants. Instead, when John talks about the height of progressive sanctification or spiritual maturity, he talks about knowing God deeply and intimately. Listen to the way Paul describes maturity. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, before I matured, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man or when I matured, I gave up childish ways. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. That's when we receive our glorified bodies, and then we will stand before the Lord, and we will see him face to face. And he says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. One more time. So when Paul talks about the height of spiritual maturity, he says, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And what's he talking about knowing fully? Well, he said face to face. He's talking about knowing God fully. So he talks about when you're mature, the glorified, so we move beyond sanctification to glorification, the height of maturity, the end state for us, is knowing God fully, knowing Him as fully or as well as He knows us. And how well does God know us? Well, He knows us perfectly. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But when we're glorified, when we're the most mature, we will know God that well too. Listen to these quotes about the importance of knowing God. A.W. Tozer wrote in Delighting in God, it is simply not enough to know about God. I take that to mean an epistemic knowledge, an intellectual knowledge of God. We must know God in increasing levels of intimacy or experience, relationship, gnosko, that lifts us up above all reason and into the world of adoration and praise and worship. George Mueller said, what will make us so exceedingly happy in heaven? It will be the fuller knowledge of God. We shall know him then far better than we do now. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he said, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for, it means in this life, is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 9, 23. We won't turn back to 1 John 2. Turn to Jeremiah 9, 23. So that's the second prophet. You've got 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, or Lamentations between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But turn toward the middle of your Bibles, after Isaiah's Jeremiah, to 9.23. So Jeremiah 9.23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches so three things here that we're not to boast about first one we're not supposed to boast about is wisdom and is and let me just ask you is wisdom good yeah wisdom's great we're supposed to pursue wisdom is not amoral knowledge is amoral which is to say knowledge can be used morally or immorally wisdom is moral there's no amoral wisdom to grow in wisdom is a good thing we're told to pursue it proverbs 4 7 the beginning of wisdom is this this is the beginning of wisdom get wisdom <laughs> that's how wisdom begins with an understanding that you should get wisdom that's how moral or good wisdom is but we're still told not to boast about it second we're not to boast about might or power many people want to be mighty or powerful Many people throughout human history, some of the wickedest, have pursued might and power more than anything else, used it to abuse or hurt others. But no matter how mighty or powerful people are, it's nothing to boast about. Third, don't boast about riches. Riches, probably the number one thing pursued. Of all things people pursue, I don't know that there's anything people pursue more frequently than wealth. But if all the riches you could ever have no matter how much it would be it is nothing to boast about and ironically these seem to be the three things that people are proudest of if you think about people boasting it is usually about one of these three things i am so wise i am so smart i am so educated look at all of my degrees or my certificates or my credentials consider all of the education i have or i am so powerful and that can take different that can manifest itself differently it doesn't have to be the person who's you know our minds go to like hitler or someone trying to dominate the world might or power could just be the person that boasts about their promotion or boasts about the number of departments that they're over in their work or boasts about the number of employees that they have and i'm not saying these things wouldn't ever come up sort of casually in conversation but if it's to boast about at the size of your business or how much authority you have how many people are under you the the size of the budget that you oversee these are all ways to boast about might or power which people do the third thing i'm so rich my house look at my house look at my cars look at my boats look at my savings account look at all the stocks that i have that's the other thing that people primarily boast about wealth god says not to boast about any of these psalm 75 44 i say to the boastful do not boast psalm 75 44 god says i say to the boastful do not boast so we're not supposed to boast but it begs the question is there anything we can boast about and there is one thing which we're told in the next verse look at jeremiah 9 24. let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that i am the lord who practices steadfast love 
justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You might recognize this verse. It's quoted twice in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 1.31 and 2 Corinthians 10.17. So this is the one thing we can boast about, knowing and understanding God. So Katie and I, we went back to my high school um, reunion, and I don't know if I would have been voted least likely to become a Christian, but I might have been toward the top of that list if they had prepared it. And I kind of had the feeling that there was surprise with numerous students who knew me in school about the direction that my life has taken, probably more surprised since becoming a pastor, having a large family. But anyway, there were lots of things I can remember being boasted about. And we ended up, Katie and I ended up finding people we didn't really associate with in high school that had also become Christians. So suddenly we had new, new friendships. And I was blessed that I felt like that was the discussion. It was about Christ. And if you become a Christian later in life, when you go back to older relationships, you won't have the relationships with unbelievers, but you'll have the relationships with new believers, and you'll find yourself doing what this verse describes, boasting about the Lord. You'll talk about your church, your church family. You'll talk about things that are happening spiritually in your life. That's what it looks like to boast in the Lord, and that's an appropriate boasting, boasting about the things God's been doing for you, boasting about the things you've been seeing God doing in your life or someone else's life. That's what we can boast about, knowing and understanding God. So if you want to know when you've met a father or a spiritually mature person, look for someone who boasts about God. You probably know you've encountered a spiritually immature person if they boast about these three things, wisdom, might, or riches. Now, I want to conclude with this. This sermon's about progressive sanctification that begins with gospel basics, such as knowing our sins are forgiving, knowing God is our Father, then growing in sanctification from the Word, from, um, from trials. And next week, we'll talk about some more things that produce growth. I shared before that the Christian life, it often involves trying to find the middle ground that prevents us from clinging to one extreme or the other, and usually in doing so, rejecting some amount of truth on the other side. Well, there's definitely a balance that needs to be struck with sanctification. There's definitely extremes in this discussion of sanctification that needs to be avoided. One extreme is we do everything. We grow through our effort. Our sanctification happens because of how hard we try, and if we're not growing, it's because we're not trying hard enough. We're not doing enough. We need to try harder, do more. The other extreme, or that extreme, can be problematic because what does it typically lead to? Numerous things. It can lead to pride. It can lead to discouragement. I would say it could lead to despair. It definitely leads to joylessness. It can lead to legalism. The other extreme is God does everything. So if we're not growing, it's sort of God's fault. He hasn't held up his end of the bargain. We got saved. He's supposed to mature us. We're not maturing. It's because God hasn't taken this out of our life. I remember hearing that from someone one time who was, who was engaging in sin, and it was because God hadn't really taken away that temptation from him. So it wasn't, wasn't his fault. If we're not growing, we don't need to change anything. We need to wait for God to change us. 
And this leads to immaturity. This leads to spiritual laziness. It leads to license to sin, liberal Christian living. So the balance regarding our sanctification is there's an active component that does involve us as we're doing some of the things we talked about, such as the spiritual disciplines, being in the Word, prayer, fellowship. And there's a passive component that God handles. Listen to these verses that strikes the balance for us. Colossians 1.29, Paul says, I toil struggling. That's how the verse starts. I toil struggling. You get the impression Paul is working hard. Then he goes on to say, I toil struggling with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. So there was active, I toil and struggle, and now passive. He's using God's energy while God is powerfully working in him. Or these similar verses, Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's active. We're told to do something. Work hard. In fact, fear and tremble perhaps if you're not taking your salvation seriously enough or working hard enough. But then he says, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is passive. This is God working in us for his good pleasure or purposes. So actively we engage in the spiritual disciplines, prayer, resisting temptation, worship, fellowship. Passively we're trusting God to be sanctifying us. So be encouraged that if you're a Christian, the gospel is at work in your life to help you become more like Christ. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and consider it a privilege to speak with you. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Father, we thank you for progressive sanctification. We thank you for the grace to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it doesn't rest on us completely for that to happen. Help us to strike that right balance, Lord. Help us to move through these stages in our Christian life. I thank you for the gospel that it's at work in our hearts, Lord, and I pray that we would rely on it and that we would find that right balance. I pray, Lord, that you'd be ministering, dealing to each of us personally through this sermon, revealing those areas in which we need to rely more on you or those areas in which you would desire us to be more active. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.